Part two, chapter five of Dawn of All by Robert U. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The scheme had been in the air for nearly two years, as Monsignor learned from his papers, and for the last month or two had come more to the front than ever, but he had not realized how close it was. It was at the end of October that the Cardinal sent for him and revealed two more facts. The first was that it was the intention of His Majesty's government to appoint a commission to consider once more the establishment of Catholicism as the state religion of England, and the second was that secret negotiations had been proceeding now for the last eight months between China, Japan, the Persian Empire, and Russia as to the former recognition of the Pope as arbitrator of the East. Both points, said the Cardinal, are absolutely sub sigillo until you hear of them from other sources and I need not tell you, Monsignor, that they have the very strongest mutual effects. I beg your pardon? Think it over, said the Cardinal, and waved him pleasantly away. From that time forward, as week followed week, the work became enormous. He was present at interviews of which he understood not more than one half of the illusions, yet with that extraordinary skill of which he was made aware by the compliments of the Cardinal and of his own friends, he showed never a sign of his ignorance. Papers constantly passed under his hands, disclosing to him the elaborate preparations that had already been made on the part of the state authorities, and questions on various points of discipline were continually submitted to him, at the bearing of which he could only guess. It seemed to him remarkable that so much fuss should be made upon what was by now almost entirely a matter of form, since by the restoration of church property, recognition of church courts, and a hundred other details, as well as by the affection of the people, the church already enjoys supreme power. He put this once, lightly, to Father Jervis. The public is affected by forms much more than by principles, said that priest, smiling. They have already accepted the principles, but even at the eleventh hour they might take fright at the forms. Do you mean it is possible that a bill, if it was brought forward, might not pass? Certainly it's possible. Otherwise, why haven't we had a commission appointed? The socialists aren't beaten yet. But it's not likely, or the bill wouldn't be brought forward at all. The prelate said nothing. It was not until a few days before Christmas that the cardinal was sent for. At the beginning of the month the commission had been appointed by an overwhelming majority in the House. The proposal had been brought forward suddenly by the government, and with a speed and an employment of business-like methods that seemed very strange to the man who had lost his memory, and who still had hanging about him a curious atmosphere of earlier days, the commission had dispatched an immense amount of work within three weeks. It was impossible to know how far negotiations had got, but even the cardinal himself was taken by surprise when he received an invitation to attend the sitting of the commission. He sent for Monsignor Masterman at once. "'You will attend me, Monsignor, please. I shall have to appear alone, but I should like you to be at hand.' It was with very much confused emotions that Monsignor found himself, a day or two later, walking up and down a corridor in the House of Representatives. He had arrived with the Cardinal, had gone up the broad staircase behind him, and had followed him even into the committee room. A long table faced him as he entered, and he noticed with an odd little thrill how every man sitting there, from the white-faced, white-haired man at the head, down to the clean-shaven, clever-looking young man nearest the door, 
had risen as the two ecclesiastics came in. The table, he noticed, was strewed with papers. An empty chair stood at the lower end of the table, a red chair, he saw, with gilded wood. The cardinal sat down. The rest sat down, all in silence. Monsignor placed the dispatch box in front of his chief, opened it, laid a few books in order, and went out. Even now, in spite of all the knowledge that he had, and the constant contemplation of the cold facts of the case, it seemed to him, as on a dozen occasions before, since his lapse of memory, as if life were not so real as it seemed. Somewhere, down in the very fibre of him, was an assumption that England and Catholicism were irreconcilable things, that the domination of the one meant the suppression of the other. Certainly history was against him. For more than a thousand years church and state in England had been partners. It was but for four hundred years, and those years of confusion and of the gradual elimination of the supernatural, that the two had been at cross-purposes. Was it not historically certain, therefore, that, should the supernatural ever be reaccepted in all its force, a partnership should again spring up between a state that needed a divine authority behind its own, and the sole institution which was not afraid to stand out for the supernatural with all its consequences? Theology was against him, for if there was anything that theology taught explicitly, it was that the soul was naturally Christian, and therefore imperfect, without the full Christian revelation. And yet, as he walked, he was disturbed. The proposed establishment of the church by the state appeared to him uncharacteristic of both, of the church, since he still tended to think that she must in her essence be at war with the world, of the state, since he still tended to think that that too, in its essence, must be at war with religion. In spite of what he had seen, he had not yet grasped with his imagination that which both experience and intellect justified as true, namely, that it is the function of the church to guide the world, and the highest wisdom of the world to organize itself on a supernatural basis. He walked up and down, saying nothing. At one end of the long corridor, a couple of secretaries whispered together on a settee, at the other he saw passing and repassing hurrying figures that went about their business. Doors opened occasionally, and a man came out. Once or twice he saluted an acquaintance, but all the while his attention remained fixed upon the door numbered eleven, behind which this quietly significant affair proceeded. The whole place seemed a very temple of stillness, the thick carpet underfoot, the noiseless doors, the admirable system of the place, all contributed to create a great solemnity. He tried to remind himself that he was present at the making of history, but it was useless. Again and again, as, with an effort, he forced the principles before his mind, his attention whirled off to a detail, to a contemplation of his chief taking his seat in the House of Lords, and to the fabric of the carpet on which he walked, to the silent whisper of one of the two conversational secretaries, to a wonder as to the form of prayer with which the first professedly Catholic Parliament in England for more than four hundred years would open. Then he checked himself, reminded himself of certain old proverbs about cups and hairs, reflected that socialism was not beaten yet, in Father Jervis's phrase, as recent events in Germany had shown. Once, as he turned at the end of the corridor farthest from the secretaries, an interesting little incident happened. A door opened abruptly, and a man coming out quickly almost ran against him. 
Then the man took off his hat and smiled. "'I beg your pardon, Monsignor. I—I I can guess your business here.' Monsignor smiled, too, a little guiltily. He recognized the socialist leader who had called on him a few months before. "'Yes, and I'm afraid you don't approve,' he said. Mr. Hardy made a little deprecatory gesture, still holding his hat in his hand. "'Oh, I'm a believer in majorities,' he said, "'and there's no doubt you have the majority. "'But—' "'Yes?' "'I hope you will be merciful. "'That is your gospel, you know.' "'You think we have the majority?' "'Oh, certainly. "'The enfranchisement of women settled all that. "'They are always clerical, you know.' Monsignor felt the point prick him. He reposed it gently. Well, you will have to take refuge in Germany, he said. The face of the other changed a little. His eyelids came down just a fraction. That's exactly what I'm going to do, Monsignor. I... But I think there's somebody wanting you. Monsignor turned. There was a hand beckoning him from behind a face, as if in agitation, from the entrance to door number eleven. If you'll excuse me, he said, and hurried off. I thought you'd like to be present at the end, Monsignor, whispered the member who had beckoned him. The Cardinal is just speaking. Committee room number eleven seemed strangely quiet, as the prelate slipped in behind his friend and stood motionless. One voice was speaking and as he tried to catch the sense, he looked round the faces, that were all turned in his direction. He saw Mr. Manners on the extreme left. Every man sat without moving, simply listening, it seemed, with an extraordinary attention, some leaning forward, some back, with the papers disregarded on the table. A couple of recording machines stood now in the center. Then he began to catch the words. "'I think, gentlemen,' said the voice from behind the high-backed chair, that I need say no more. We have discussed at length, and I hope to your satisfaction, the particular points on which you desired information, and my answers have brought out. I think, the essence of all the conditions, on which alone the Church can accept the terms proposed. I wish it to be brought before the House, perfectly clearly, that in her own province the Church must be supreme. She must have an entire and undisputed right over her own doctrine and discipline, for that is at the root of her only claim to be heard. In respect to any legislation which, in her opinion, touches the eternal principles of morality, in all such things, for example, as the marriage law, her supreme authority must be respected, as well in all those other matters of the same nature upon which you have questioned me. But on the other side, the Church recognizes, and always will recognize, the right of a free people to govern themselves, and— not only recognizes that right, but will support it with all the power at her command. I have acknowledged that in a few instances in history, ecclesiastics have interfered unduly with what did not concern them. Interfered, that is, not as citizens, for that is their right, in common with all other citizens, but in the name of religion. Now that, gentlemen, is simply a thing of the past. If secular rulers have learned by experience, so have ecclesiastical rulers, I have invited investigation into the history of the last hundred years, and I have answered those few charges that have been brought, I hope, to your satisfaction. There was a murmur of applause. In secular matters, therefore, the Church will be wholly on the side of liberty. 
ecclesiastical authorities for example would be the first to welcome a repeal of legislation as regards heresy but on the other hand we fully recognize the right of a secular state to protect itself even by the death penalty against those who threaten the existence of the sanctions on which a secular state takes its stand we recognize her right i say but i do not mean by that that you will not find a majority of ecclesiastics who hold that it is to put it mildly a deplorable policy and very imperfectly christian however i have said all this before both in public and now again in answer to your questions and i think that at any rate so far as i am concerned i should not be to blame if the nation accepts the proposed change under a misapprehension you see gentlemen the attempt that ended fifty years ago the attempt that was called in its day protestantism to establish a religion which was to be secondary in any sense to the state failed and failed lamentably in spite of the noble lives that were spent in laboring for such a compromise for it is the whole essence of a supernatural religion to be supreme in its own province the very adjective asserts it and any endeavor to compromise on this entirely vital point is in itself a denial of the principle for a while this was not perceived men regarded the christian church or rather that which they took to be the christian church merely on its earthly side as an organization comparable to a state they did not seem to see that religion must always have a wider base than any secular body since it deals with eternity as well as with time while the state professedly treats only of temporal things the consequence was either conflict whatever supernatural elements clashed with natural or else the subservience of religion and its consequent loss of prestige as well as of its supernatural character a national church therefore is a contradiction in terms since it asserts that that which is in its very nature larger than this world must yet be confined within the limits not only of this world but even of a part of it well i need not labor that point you grasped it gentlemen even before you were good enough to ask me to give evidence before this commission i felt it however only right that such conditions should be reiterated and recorded before matters went any farther the church therefore is perfectly content to remain as she has always remained in this country for the last four centuries a free society governing the consciences of her children or she is content to take outwardly and officially that position which she has always at least tactically claimed and to reassume her civil dignity and her civil responsibilities but she is not content to waive any of those divine rights with which her founder endowed her even in return for the greatest privileges still less is she content to receive those privileges under false pretenses again the low murmur of applause broke out and three or four men shifted their positions slightly monsignor was conscious again suddenly and vividly of the double sense of unreality and of intense drama which he had felt so often before at critical moments it seemed to him amazing and yet more amazingly simple that such claims should be put in such words under such circumstances it was astounding that such things should be said and yet more astounding that they needed to be said for were they not after all the very elements of civil and religious relations there was something too in the voice of the invisible speaker that thrilled his very heart the tones were completely tranquil there were no gestures and the very face that spoke was unseen yet in the quiet fluency the note of absolute assurance there was a dominating appeal that was almost hypnotic in its effect 
he had perceived this characteristic of the cardinal often before he had noticed it first on that occasion on which for the first time in his knowledge he had come into his presence still staggered by the shock of his mental failure and recovery but he had never appreciated the strength of the personality so clearly the cardinal was no orator in the ordinary sense there was no thunder or pathos or drama in his manner but his complete assurance and the long gentle incisive sentences moving like rulers in a calm sea were more affecting than any passion could be it seemed to him now the very incarnation of that spirit of the church that at once attracted and repelled him in its serenity its gentleness its reasonableness and its irresistible force then on a slightly higher note and with a perceptible increase of deliberation the voice went on i must add one word gentlemen i said just now that the church was content to be as she has recently been in this country content that is so long as she continues to enjoy the liberty with which england endows her and perhaps as her chief minister in this country i ought to say no more but gentlemen i am an englishman as well as a catholic and i love england only less than i love the church i say frankly that i do love her less no man who has any principles that can be called religious can say otherwise i tell you plainly that should it come to be a choice between caesar and god between the king and the pope i should throw myself at once on the side of christ and his vicar monsignor drew a breath it seemed to him that this was appallingly plain speaking he expected a murmur of remonstrance he glanced at the faces but there was no movement or change except that a young member suddenly smiled as with pleasure but i love england went on the voice passionately and devotedly and in spite of what i said just now i must add that as an englishman there is but one more thing that i desire for my country and that is that she may carry out that project on whose account you gentlemen have met to-day again a murmur of applause rose and sank again instantly you have kindly asked me to make this little speech and i do not wish to turn it into a sermon but i must conclude by saying that splendid as is the history of england in many points there is one black blot upon the page and that the act of hers by which she renounced christ's vicar by whom kings reign you have done justice at last in returning to us those possessions which our forefathers dedicated to god's service but there remains one more thing to do formally and deliberately as one kingdom to return to him who is king of kings i know it will come some day as individuals englishmen have already returned to him but a corporate crime must be expiated by corporate reparation and it is that reparation which has already waited too long i am an old man gentlemen that no doubt is why i have been so verbose but my one prayer for the last thirty years has been that that corporate reparation may be made within my own lifetime the voice suddenly trembled then the watcher saw the chair pushed back and the little scarlet cap covering the white hair rise above it simultaneously every man rose to his feet that is all gentlemen there was a moment's silence then the applause broke out it was not loud or noisy as there were scarcely two dozen men in the room yet it was astonishingly affecting just the tapping of hands on the table and a murmur of voices the cardinal silenced it by a gesture one word gentlemen 
I have said nothing of any opposition. Perhaps it would have been better if I had, but I will only say this, and it's something of a warning too. I do not believe that this bill that is spoken of will necessarily mean peace. I am aware of the dangers that are threatening. Perhaps I am even more aware of them than any other person present. And yet, for all that, I am not in favor of delay. He turned suddenly, and with his long, smooth step was at the door almost before Monsignor had time to open it and step aside. There was no time for any other man to speak. The car had hardly moved off from the door before Monsignor turned to his chief. "'Your Eminence,' he said, "'what was that about danger? I did not understand.' The thin face was a little pale with the exertions of the speech, as it turned to him in answer. I will tell you that, he said, as soon as the bill becomes law. End of part two, chapter five.